Yeah, man, you're a square, man. I am a square. I'm like Hi-Fi on the Flintstones. <laughs> if you actually get that, I'll, I'll be impressed. Uh, I watch the Flintstones, man. Fred, Fred actually became famous because he sang Listen to the Mockingbird. He did it like on a demo record with, you know, not for any reason, but somebody discovered it and he became famous. And he went by the name of Hi-Fi. Is that where he, when he wore the wig? Uh, no, I don't think he wore the wig for that one. He, but he wore okay. these like little glasses. Yeah, and, yes. And he, he basically had Elvis's manager, the, the colonel, was managing yeah. him. And eventually just Wilma and Betty got tired of being on the road. So they started the rumor that Hi-Fi is a square. <laughs> and what they would do is they'd say Hi-Fi is a, and then with their fingers they'd mime a square. And, and then all the kids stopped listening to him and stopped caring and they went home. Once they realized he was a square. As you do. Yep. Oh, yeah. Anyway, we could sit and <laughs> it all night because we already have for 40 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> that's why we do this. It's amazing how this time flies by when you're just sitting <laughs> But we should get the show started if we're going to do it. So, you guys ready? I'm ready. Back to the bin. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and I have been abandoned again. Bill, Bill and Scott think work is important, and they got to go and do work, 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 while I'm sitting here just waiting to record about comics. Like, they, they act like, like, you know, as if we don't get paid for this. Oh, wait a minute. Anyway. <laughs> what, pay? Once again, once again, I threw out the call, and once again... Air metal hero Chris Tyler answered and said, What? Yeah. Here I am, back again, your worst nightmare. You didn't even bring a sleepwalker book with him no, this time. Oh, right? no, you gotta switch it up. And we are joined today by Mr. Gene Hendricks, who's been sitting and, and synopsizing book after book after book in hopes that one day he might get on the show again. Hi, how's it going? That's Scott's <laughs> going. Good. How you doing, Gene? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. I... Apparently have way too much free time. <laughs> Ditto. You, you know what? You have a surprising amount of free time for somebody who has as young of a child as you do. Because I don't remember having any free time at all when my kids were that age. Yeah, except my, my daughter takes after me, meaning that she can play on her own with no problem whatsoever. She has one heck of an imagination. Cool. I do too, and I have no children. Thank God. But you can play on your own. <laughs> Often. <laughs> uh, thank you for coming on, guys. Anytime. You know what? Thank I'm going to get it out of the way now instead of waiting till the end when I forget and then say oops. So before we get started, where can everybody find you, Chris? Uh, I am on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, also on the Two True Freaks Network. I am on Weekly Heroics with Scott McGregor covering TV shows that are based on comic books, also on the Two True Freaks Network, and uh, I am on Cast Protection, a Stranger Things limited podcast series with. Dave Atterbury and Jonathan Kreitz covering the Netflix original series uh, Stranger Things, also on the Two True Freaks Network. Which we just, we finally binged the end of Stranger Things, and Excellent. now I'm just listen, looking, looking forward to listening to each episode as it comes out. Good. So far, so good. We, as we record this, there are, the fourth one just came out today. Yes. I've listened to three, and I have one sitting waiting for me to listen to it. 
Excellent. Gene, where can we find you? Well, you can find me, again, on Two True Freaks, and I have my own show, The Hammer Podcast, and that's just me rambling on about various geeky topics. The most recent one was with Scott Gardner about why we like Disney. Uh, I also co-host with Mr. Adam Worth, the Quantum Cast, all about Quasar, the successor to Marvel Boy, and you'll find out why that's important in a little bit. And Dr. Bill Robinson and I host Anime Freaks, where we are switching gears. Uh, the next episode, which should be coming out soon, is all about the movie Akira. And then we go on into a, uh, a request of uh, somebody's children that <laughs> said we <laughs> must cover this show. Be? <laughs> <laughs> and you know I, I'm not going to say what they've requested, but, but no. I can tell you it was my two children who made a request for an anime show because they want me to watch it. And I said, well, if you get Bill and Gene to cover it, I will watch it. And we are covering it. Therefore, so, you must watch it. Yep, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it, and then we're probably probably going to listen all together. You, you, oh. you may have finally come up with the formula to get my kids to sit and listen to podcasts. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Apologize to them, not me. <laughs> no, yeah, they're, they're going to suddenly lose all that free time they have <laughs> at least if i'm anything to go by <laughs> yeah same here i spend all too many hours a day listening to podcasts if only i but, could uh, if only i could you know it's it's we we've done numerous shows that have had the character quasar on them and every time i get a message from gene saying what the heck <laughs> <laughs> Why are you doing these shows and not asking me to be on, me to be on them, considering I do a Quasar show? Because no so one listens to my a... Quasar show. What's that? I listen. No, no. <laughs> well, okay, that's one. There you go. But, uh, you know, now we, we finally kind of have a quasi-Quasar kind of thing going today. Yes, yes. We have we have the weaponry and kind of a costume, so, yes. And the, the precursor. Yeah, before it went goop. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, before we get to that book, though, uh, you guys reading anything lately? Yeah, I'm. I'm actually going through my own reading project. Of I'm using the complete Marvel reading order website. Oh yeah. And Marvel Unlimited, and going through in in reading order, not release order, in reading order. And I am up to what I just do, uh, Tales to Astonish 67, I think. Which so is, now that's, is that right about the time when Submariner joined the book, or has he been in it for a while? No, actually, that's still Giant Man and the Hulk. Oh, it, it is still Giant Man, okay. Yeah, yeah. In fact, actually, I think this, I think 67 is the one that Scott was referring to a few episodes ago about where the Hulk started to become dumb. Right, right. Because because up until then he was kind, you know, mean but still intelligent, and in and now he's just started to refer to himself as Hulk. And so he's gone to the third person. Oh. Oh, no. He's gone to the third person, and there's caption boxes, and in the beast cloudy mind, it's a, it, it was never like that up until this point. Yeah, he just seemed gruff before this. Right, it was just yeah. He, he was it was the Joe Fixit personality essentially right up yes. until the, now now the slightly PO'd Hulk yes not, not the Incredible Hulk <laughs> then, so yeah you, you're gonna get to Submariner in about in a couple just a couple of issues I think I think you're right yeah 
And then I'll, I'll just throw a plug in for one of our uh, loyal listeners, Kirk Greenfield, who does the uh, Imperious Rex uh, Can, was it, story of a serial Confessions of a invader? Surface Serial Invader? Confessions of a ser- sur- Serial Surface Invader. That uh, unfortunately, that's not a- available on iTunes, so you kind of have to search it out on the Internet. But it is a good yeah. listen, and I would recommend it. And uh, I listen to each episode when he comes out with them, for what it's worth. All right. So... How about you, Chris? Reading anything lately? Uh, the only thing, uh, I, new books, like I always mention, have priced me out a long, long time ago. I did flirt around with uh, reading some digital copies of, um, I read DC Rebirth, number one. Uh, that was a good hook. I'll wait till the whole story's done and wait until this uh, new continuity gets chugging before I think I dive in any deeper. I am uh, rereading Preacher because of the TV show, so I'm just reading old stuff like we do on this show. Yeah, well, you know, somebody posted a link on Facebook today to an article that said uh, something about, like, you know, why your comic collection isn't worth anything. And it, it was not a uh, it was not a, ba- a badly reasoned article where they, you know, they kind of talked about how at this point, you know, they charge two ninety nine or three ninety nine a book. But almost invariably, if you wait, you can find those same books in a dollar bin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. You know, and they, and you really can't resell the, the dollar ones for anything more than that when you get them. So they're just talking about how, with the exception of very rare, yeah, unless it's know, a key issue very, that's in low print yeah. run or something, it's availability. Yeah, with very few exceptions, there's no books that that you can consider to be an investment. Not anymore. right. Yeah, and you know that's true. So you know the the reason to get comics is to read them. I, I've kind of always here. felt that way, and I still do. Uh, but you know, every once in a while, you get something. We we came up. I don't know if you heard the discussion of it. Scott was given a book that was slabbed, and yes. we were talking about should he cut the slab and read the book. And it kind of goes against my theory because I feel like, well, once it's been slabbed, I probably would leave it that way. On the other hand, it totally goes you know goes against the argument of uh, you know you get the book to read it, not to value it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had I bought one slabbed book because I needed to fill in a run, and it was Ultimate Spider-Man two or three. I had one. I had all the other ones going after that, and it was the only way that I could get it. And it wasn't a bad price. It's still in the slab. The slab is cracked. I I received it cracked. I didn't complain about it because I'm like I really don't care that the, the slab is cracked. <laughs> I I think it's still slabbed. I don't know. I probably on principle i'll probably just crack it open if it is and just stick it in the slot where it's supposed to be even though i did sell that variant cover of ultimate spider-man number one several several years ago because i got a lot of money for it right well when you can get a lot of money i recommend that you do but i do agree with the article that you know if you're collecting comics and it's not because you love comics you probably shouldn't collect comics yeah agree anyway now that i've brought everybody down Hmm. Let's talk some let's talk some actual books here. All right. Uh, I'm going to give you guys the uh the the run of the place since you're the two guests this week. You know, normally we go Marvel DC indie, but I'm going to tell you guys, you know, who wants to go first? Do you want me to go first or would you rather go first? We don't have to break format. Yeah, what the heck. All right. Well, then in that case, I brought Agents of Atlas number 1, and that was the first issue of a 6-issue mini series. And I did not prepare a synopsis. I'm doctor billing it today. I will be too. Oh boy. <laughs> it came out in October of 2006, and it's got a cover by Tom Coker. 
and it shows Jimmy Woo, a young Jimmy Woo, on the cover, kind of in a James Bond pose. And behind him, there's four separate lines or four separate uh, vertical pictures. One is of Venus, one is of Marvel Boy, one is of Ape Man, and, and one is of Robot Man. And it's each one has kind of got a distinct, you know, color to it. So it's oh, excuse me, it's not Ape Man, it's Gorilla Man. My mistake. I have to apologize there. And no, no uh, dialogue or words on it. The story itself is written by Jeff Parker, penciled by Leonard Kirk, inked by Chris Justice, colored by Michelle Madsen, lettered by Dave Lampere, and edited by Mark Panachia. The story opens with kind of a tale from the 19 from 1958, where Jimmy Woo was leading a squad of superheroes against the Yellow Claw, who had apparently kidnapped President Eisenhower. And the aforementioned uh, heroes that are on the cover are the people who he led into battle. They did an attack on whatever citadel he was being held in. As they did, Venus kind of looks like looks like she's kind of naked, and she's wooing all the soldiers. Woo-woo. And they eventually send out some shadow men after the heroes and they're sufficient to stop venus and robot man and gorilla man but marvel boy to the rescue because he has light powers that just destroy these shadow demons they make their way in they rescue and i have to put rescue in air quotations if i was actually somebody <laughs> yeah who gave it i wouldn't have wanted to get rescued from that situation they rescue ike who's who's actually like in a tub being massaged by a bunch of beautiful women and, but in the meanwhile, Yellow Claw set off a bomb to explode, so they all get into a, into a uh, some sort of futuristic air, airplane. Uh, the heroes, Ike, and the three women, and yeah. they head for home. Turns out that they're reminiscing about this story. It's Gorilla Man who's being asked through a two-way mirror about the story, and he he knows at least one of the people who's questioning him is uh, Dum Dum Dugan because he could smell him despite the two-way mirror. And the other gentleman is a man named Derek Kanata, who's a liaison from Wakanda. And he's he's got some sort of, like, tattoos on his face to show his tribe uh, affiliation. They tell, they tell Gorilla Man that uh, Jimmy Woo has, was caught in some sort of a, an attack. And uh, even though he had been retired for years, he went on, on a mission kind of rogue and was seriously burned and is near death at this point. And they bring him to see Jimmy, and Jimmy's in a uh, in a bed with life support on him. They say he's got no brain function at all. They're just keeping him alive, basically trying to figure out what this mystery is that's going on. In the meanwhile, you know, Gorilla Man doesn't shed any light on the mystery, but they, uh, they end up putting him into some sort of uh, protective custody until this can get figured out. But... Gorilla Man doesn't want that, so he arranges for his own escape using Robot Man, or bringing Robot Man out of mothballs to help him. And they they do an attack on the facility holding Jimmy Woo. There's one really cool shot where where Robot Man is kind of carrying Gorilla Man. Yeah. And Gorilla Man's got machine guns. He's got one in each hand and one in each foot because his his feet are so... uh, so he can manipulate his toes so well that he's firing machine guns and aiming them with his feet. 
and pretty much they they make their way into the compound and they secure Jimmy Woo, and then are tele, not teleported. They're uh, the uh, tractor beam pulls them up to a ship that is being run by Marvel Boy, and from there Jimmy is put into some sort of healing bath and he awakes and he's as young as he was in 1958, possibly with not all his memories intact and the story is to be continued now i haven't read this before i read this for the sake of the show today and it does follow one of the rules that i have for a first part of a uh, of a multi-part story it makes me want to read the next part oh, yeah yes and that's that's one of the biggest keys as far as i'm concerned you know a couple of weeks ago i don't know if you guys listened but a couple of weeks ago we did our score episode for suicide squad mm-hmm and one of the one of the issues that we covered was the let's get the band together issue. Mm-hmm. And I really thought it kind of failed because it was very rote by the numbers with very little going for it that, that enticed me into wanting more. And I feel like this book did it successfully. This book kind of, you know, did the same story, only there's enough mystery going on and there's enough compelling stuff going on that it really made me want to see more. And that's that's huge to me. And I like the fact that they're taking this 1950s team and bringing them into current day. Because you pretty much have characters, well, with the exception of Marvel Boy, I'm not sure how, how you work out Marvel Boy in this, in the current day, considering that, at least as far as my knowledge of him, he became the Crusader and was disintegrated. And Fantastic Four 165, somewhere around there. That is true. And uh, the Quantum Bands then eventually went to Wendell Vaughn, who became Quasar. But in Quasar's series, Marvel Boy is brought back. Okay. I think, it, I think it's part of the Infinity Gauntlet. Is he rejuvenated to being a relatively young man again? Yes. He's brought back as uh, as he was in his prime. So, okay, and, 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 and there's an additional and, set of quantum bands for him? Yeah, he, he he's recreated complete with his own set of quantum bands. Well, there you go. Okay, so that explains it. See, this is, yeah. that's why you have the Quasar expert on the show. Yes, <laughs> or one of the two of us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, you, you're taking him into the current day, but now we've, we've already explained how he got to where he is. And as far as Robot Man, Venus, and Gorilla Man, there's no reason in particular why they have to have... Or, or why they have to be subject to the same rules of aging that regular humans are. Right. So there's no reason that you have to make a big deal about that. And they restored Jimmy Woo to his 1958 physical uh, condition. So now we've got the band back together, and it makes me, again, it makes me want to go to issue two and see what they're going to do now that they're there. Yeah, this is uh, these are characters that, uh, I, other than Marvel, I am not familiar with these guys. Uh, so... Um, you give me a giant gorilla getting carried by a robot with machine guns. Uh, not the robot, the, the gorilla has the machine guns, like you yeah. said. Um, I'm kind of sold right there. You're starting off and you're doing a Yellow Menace-style story <laughs> at the beginning. It's like, come on. like That's just pulpy awesomeness right there. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't Yellow Claw, isn't that a public domain character that didn't they... Um, didn't Alex Ross use him in his uh, Project Superpowers run uh, for Dynamite a few years ago? 
I think you may be correct on that because for a little while I was confusing him with Fu Manchu. Oh, okay. not Fu Manchu is owned. That's why you won't yeah, see yeah, exactly. him. Exactly. Which is why a lot of the reprints for Shang Chi are not happening because he's in that. Exactly. That's the point I was going to make is that he was used in Shang Chi, and I don't know if he was used then under a licensing agreement or if the ownership had lapsed and then it got reestablished sometimes sometime afterwards. I'm not sure what the circumstances were that Marvel was able to use that character originally. But for whatever reason, they don't don't they don't own it now. And when I was reading this, I was confusing Yellow Claw with Shang Chi. Mm. But I think you're absolutely correct. I think he is a I think he's a pulp character who is in the public domain at this point. So yeah. if we want to write a story, we can. I want to write the story about Ike with the three Asian women. <laughs> I, I love his response. Thanks for rescuing me from these. Fiends. It's just like yeah. it's. It's just. Rem, it reminded me of Monty Python. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, can I just have a little peril? <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I would say the artwork in this book. Leonard Kirk most recently did the Fantastic Four. Uh, on on its last run before they canceled it, which is still a sin as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But I kind of liked his artwork in that. It was kind of to the style that I enjoy, you know, kind of clean. Uh, you'd like the fact that Sleepwalker appeared in that run. I read I read those issues just for that reason. <laughs> so it worked. Now, this this art style it seems to be very different, and I don't know if it's Chris Justice, the inker, who I'm not familiar with, or if Leonard Kirk, uh, if his style has changed over the, the almost 10 years that this book uh, has been out. Or if he was intentionally just going for a different style, this this looks to me almost Howard Chaikin like. Yeah, I mean the the faces are other than for you know Gorilla Man, it's like they're kind of squishy and they're not terribly detailed. Not that I'm looking for super detail and stuff, but it's uh, I mean Dum Dum Dugan to me honestly he only barely looks like Dum Dum Dugan when I think of Dum Dum Dugan. Um, I mean, right. the, the mustache is toned down, his hair is toned down, which I, I mean, I guess they're trying to bring him into the modern day a little bit, but it's not, I, I th- it's an, it's one of those things that I, I see often with when an artist is doing artwork, it's unless they're really interested in drawing the character, some of the other background or side characters don't really pop. And, uh, it's, you know, the robot man and gorilla man, they pop because they're doing fun stuff. Anybody else that's just Joe Schmo is just sort of blah. It just doesn't really stand out. Yeah, a lot of the panels, and, and you know, I, I hate when I make points that contradict each other because a lot of times <laughs> I complain. Because a lot of times I complain that panels are, you know, it's the person and then the background is pretty much nil. These, the background almost appears to be too busy in some of them. It's like he's taken my criticism and he's run a little too far with it to some extent. Yeah. On the other hand, I do very much like his storytelling, the way the way he kind of paces the story and the way he gets it through. You can, other than to differentiate between the flashbacks and the current day, you could pretty much follow the story without reading the dialogue. It's right. not, you know, it, it's it's very well represented as far as what's going on. Yeah, I'd say but, so. It's a. Uh... It's pretty. It's pretty easy to follow. Um, the, I mean, the the only time the, I mean, the the 
green camera footage parts are a little... I mean, they're supposed to be kind of staticky and, and crummy looking. It's a little hard following that just because, I mean, the, the caption boxes for the people that are speaking that are watching, it's... You know, you're going to try to kind of follow that a little bit. But, I mean, overall, the the actual visual storytelling in it works just fine, uh, especially when Robot Man breaks through that wall. That's so rad. <laughs> yeah, the, the use of the panel layouts is good. The, it's not, you know, it's not a grid, and it's not, luckily, not all splash pages. No. Yeah. yeah. There, you have, like, some two-third page or three-quarter page stuff, but a lot of other oddly shape panels just and it gets you like you said it gets you that decent pacing about what's going on yeah, it, it never seems like it's oddly shaped panels for the sake of having oddly shaped panels no no it, it, seems, it, it seems like sometimes he he shaped them that way in order to fit an extra panel in so that he could get that much of the story told before going to the next page which i kind of appreciate the effort that goes into that yeah it's not even so much that they're oddly shaped they're all four-sided panels um you know he's not doing anything crazy some of them overlap uh and right. some of them are thinner than others but it's not i mean he's not you know making hexagonal panels or anything it's still no no it's still yeah, that, yeah that's more of a neil adams thing yeah uh, they're they're not all uh equal size is what i meant it, it, there's yeah. no standard grid no, on right. any one page no, and there are no splash pages, and even if there's something, even that page with them getting beamed out, it's not really a splash because there's two other inset panels. So it's right. He's still using, you know, he's using large form pictures, but putting other visual parts of the storytelling in there so that there is just no. It's it's not Hulk. I mean, a uh, Silver Surfer about to hit uh, Thor on the cover of that Thor issue, you know. It's like, mm-hmm. Now, overall, you know, I, I'm like I said, it's not my style of art because I like it a little cleaner than this. There's, there is a tendency in this particular book to use a very thick line, yeah, so, right. or, or or to go very shadowy. So that that's not really my my particular style, but I think it does work well for this book, especially the stuff that's supposed to be taking place in the past. Yes. So overall, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy with the artwork. I think the story is pretty well written. And again, you know, like I, like I said, I, I'm looking forward to getting issue number two and sitting down and reading it now. Yeah, I'm intrigued. I have no idea where this is going, but uh, I like the, the Motley crew style type of superhero get-togethers, especially with characters I'm really not familiar with. Um, so it's, I, I, I instantly want to read stuff with Robot Man and Gorilla Man. And I'm pretty sure every one of these characters was introduced in the 1950s, okay. literally, as opposed to just having an issue come out now that took place in the 50s. No, that makes sense, yeah. Because I, I know Marvel Boy was. And, I'm, and like I said, I'm pretty confident Gorilla Man and, and Robot Man and Venus were. I'm not sure. They do mention that Namorita was on the team at one point. And she refused this particular assignment, I think. I don't know if she comes back to the team later in this series or not. I'm not 100% sure if she had been introduced in the 50s or not. In fact, maybe I could even look at that. Was Na- were were Namor's stories uh, even being published in the 50s? Uh, well, she, he, he, he was in the 40s. I'm not 100% sure if he was if he was coming out it's still in the 50s cuz i thought his reintroduction into the marvel universe was in fantastic 4 after the golden age i could be completely wrong 
Well, that's okay, where her, he was... first appe- her first appearance was in Marvel Mystery Comics number 82 in May of 1947. Oh, okay. There Just you go. Namor, not Namorita. Namorita is her daughter. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I was talking about... I know Namor was Golden Age. I didn't know if his daughter was introduced that early on. Well, it's not his daughter. It's not? Uh, no, no, Namora she, is she, his cousin. She's his cousin. Okay, all right. Yeah. I'm getting my time. And Namorita is his daughter. Okay, oh, hard I, read it. I read it wrong. Should have had a V8. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just I'm just looking. I'm on the Marvel wiki right now. Just I looked her up, and it says relatives, Namorita, and then in quotations it says daughter, and then it says cloned. Okay. Wow. Well, I'm not privy to that story. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> Nor am I. I I remember her from Marvel two and one, but I'm not really familiar where her where her uh, character is gone. She first appeared, named Rita, in Submariner number fifty in nineteen seventy-two. Okay. And she, Rita went on to be fairly big with the New Warriors. Yes. That's that's primarily where I remember her from is in the New Warriors. Why isn't that a Netflix show? Oh, it should be. It really should be. Night Thrasher would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, we have this super smart rich kid who uh, dresses up in armor and rides a skateboard. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> uh, they, you typical. know what though? They wouldn't be able to use uh, what Speedball though, right? Wasn't he a? Is he an X Men character? No. Is he? I thought, no, I thought uh, he was introduced in the New Warriors. I'll think you're thinking can- Cannonball. Cannonball. That's right. Yeah. Stupid me. And oh. New Warriors is where they brought Firestar into the Marvel. Yeah. Comic universe. Well, she would be an X Men character. <laughs> I don't know because she she. I know those those contracts. I think get very very specific as to which characters are and which characters are not. Whatever, yeah. just so, cast Firestar for me, please. To know. Yeah, I want to see a live action Firestar. Get that going. Yes. I'll, I'll get working on that. She can even have this <laughs> lion with her. I don't care. <laughs> Uh, do you, you gents have any uh, any more comments on this particular book? I no. I dug it. I uh, I almost I don't know if I want to see where it's going more or you know seeing another adventure in the fifties more. Um, yeah, this is kind of a toss up, isn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't mind either, especially with characters like these. You you have so much freedom because they they probably haven't have only been in a handful of issues even in the fifties. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing that um, the fact that they're dragging these characters out of mothballs means they can do pretty much anything. They're not really tying it into any other major characters. So I, who knows? I mean, maybe not all these guys are going to make it out of this adventure that's coming up. So actual peril. Yeah, uh, Gene, how how much? If you know how much, uh, how many issues was Marvel Boy in in the fifties? Off the top of my head, I I couldn't tell you. I, uh, sorry I, to put you on the spot. I thought you. No, know. I, I, I want to say not more than ten. I mean, yeah, that's he, that's what I was thinking. That it was probably a very limited number, and and again, that that's especially in the 1950s where they didn't do a lot of deep characterization really in their comic writing. Right. You, know, you, you you probably have a mostly blank slate with a character like that, and with yeah. all of these characters. I mean, really, Marvel Boy, he didn't really get a backstory until Quasar number two because he was just he was there in the 50s and they brought him back in Fantastic Four as a villain which he got disintegrated 
And then they explained the, the heel turn in Quasar by saying that basically he went nuts. He went back to find his father on uh, a moon of Uranus. And <laughs> yeah, that, hey, I'm con- congrat- contractually obligated to mention Uranus whenever I'm talking about Quasar. I know. <laughs> and his father was dead and he went bananas and then he ended up going back to Earth and lost control of the quantum bands and disintegrated himself. So that that's more or less the entire backstory and didn't happen until the 80s. Right. Right. And I think if I see I thought they had given pretty much that that much of the story in those fantastic four issues when he went crazy. Yeah, I think I I don't remember. I haven't read them in quite a while. No, but, nor have I. But I thought I thought they had given the thing about him looking for his father and finding him deceased and that that was what made him crazy. I thought that was actually in that it, story. It could be. Uh, but they they went into it uh, I think a little bit more because in issue two Quasar ends up on that moon. And what moon is that? The one of the moons of Uranus. There you go. <laughs> I just want to make Hero happy. Yeah, Uranus makes me happy, Paul. And that that's where he yeah, found... actually anybody's anus makes you happy. <laughs> oh, stop! That's not true. He's more picky than that. You should know. Don't you pick spend- your anus. That's a terrible thing to do. <laughs> okay. All right, before, before we get a uh, NSFW on this, why don't, we, why don't we give some ratings? Okay. Uh, start with the cover. That definitely has a very thick line to it. I like the layout of it. I'm not too wild about the way each individual re- uh, rendering is. I feel like they could have been a little bit cleaner, more detailed. I even like the color scheme aspect of it. Uh, for anybody listening who hasn't seen it, the first uh, vertical uh, shot is Robot Man, and it's kind of a, an orangey color. Second one is Gorilla Man, and it's green. Third one is Marvel Boy in red. And the fourth is Venus in blue, with Jimmy Woo standing in front of uh, front and center. I kind of like the color scheme. I like the layout. It's just, like I said, the individual renderings that I'm not wild about. But it would catch my eye on the stand, and I think if I were looking for something new to read, I would be enticed enough that I I might go for this one. So I'm going to give it a B for the cover. The interior art, like I said, I really like the, the pacing of it. I like a lot of the individual renderings. I think it could have been a little cleaner, but overall I think it really kind of does the trick. So I'm going to also give that a B. Uh, And the story I found very intriguing, and it makes me want more, so I'm going to give the story an A-. minus. Overall, I'll give the book a B+. All right. Uh, The cover, honestly, um, it wouldn't have caught my eye. I I mean, Jimmy Woo is looking... It almost doesn't it look it looks almost like they're trying to ape a little bit the 60s bond posters a little bit uh, oh, I think that's exactly what they're doing. especially with his pose uh, on the cover um, see, considering I don't know any of these characters from Adam um, I don't think it would have gotten me to grab the book and again I agree with you the layout and the colors are fine uh, but it's not really something that would have caught my eye I, it's a, it, to me it's a totally average cover it would be a C. Uh, the interior art, again, that's not really my style. I think the drawings, uh, the art in the Golden Age sections, uh, is I think that looks better than the modern era stuff. Um, 
but it's re- again, it's really not my style, um, and that's only just the style itself. The, the rest of it, the visual storytelling and the actual uh, narrative that's going on with the visual storytelling is fine, but it's really not my cup of tea. Um, I, I, it's yeah, to me, it would probably be a C plus for the interior art, uh, other than those couple of standout individual panels. Story-wise, uh, I'm all in on the story. I do want to see where it goes. Um, it's not... Uh, I probably wouldn't have run right out to buy the next issue, so I can't give it in the, in the A range, but I would probably give it a B plus. Uh, between all those things together, I think that puts it at like a B minus, I would say. It's probably a little bit lower than that because I have a couple of Cs in there. But uh, overall, if I have to do it as a gestalt, it would probably be a B minus. Yeah, this cover, it's one of those things, it it, ta- it takes me a little while to figure out that's Marble Boy in there, and that's the only character I actually know. <laughs> and But just looking at it, if I was just going through the racks and, and seeing it, I would see, like, no, that looks different. Three bucks? No. <laughs> Oh, the no. cover does not the the cover does not want me make me want to buy it at that price. But <laughs> well, it's very few covers make me want to spend three dollars. Yeah. So you know, also, I'll, I'll take that the, the actual dollar amount out of the equation. Yeah, but no, just looking at it, it's like okay, maybe, but it, it's not anything that jumps right out at me. So I'm I'll I'll give it a C plus on that. Um, interior art, it's it's not bad i mean like we were saying the pacing is great the layouts are 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 good the the art style it's a little too squinty eyed for me yes uh like you know everyone is in a dark room but they look like they have a light shining in their face uh so it's it's not i mean it's it's well done but it's not the kind of style i prefer so i'll give it a b minus on that uh story-wise yeah it it makes me want to read the next issue, I'm um, I'm intrigued about where where Marvel Boy got a spaceship from because I from Uranus. Having, ah, ah, <laughs> I didn't have to say it that time, <laughs> but it it's it's interesting. You know, it gets me want to go out and get the next issue, so I'll I'll give it a B on the story. So I would say that's what a, a B minus overall. And there you have it. Okay, so that, that puts us all not too far apart. Yeah. On this one. Uh, moving on, right along, we'll go over to our DC, and Hero's got that today. Oh, uh, this is going to be interesting. Um, I'm yeah. going to have to use a, syn- a pre-written synopsis for mine, too, because I have Ambush Bug number one. Uh, this is the f- from the first issue from the four-issue limited miniseries. That was uh, cover dated of June of 1985, but on sale in March of 1985, with the low, low cover price of only three quarters. The writer, uh, or I should say the plotter and penciler, is Keith Giffen. The scripter is Robert Lauren Fleming. The inker is Robert Oxner. The letterist was John Costanzer. Costanzer? Costanza. John Costanza. And the colorist was Anthony Tallinn. The title of the issue is Ha <laughs> Wipeout, and uh, the cover depicts a parody of, um, that would be Superman number one. Um, so we have the oval circle with S- <laughs> Ambush Pug in a really, really bad <laughs> fake Superman-ish type getup. Um, 
and it's uh it's kind of lumpy and bumpy doesn't look too great uh it's got the yellow background it's got the oval and he's saying hey check it out i'm leaping tall buildings with a single bound uh stay right where you are i gotta locate a speeding bullet there's non-stop action all in full color and there's a little cover blurb at the bottom about uh erwin schwab who is the ambush bug and uh, synopsizing this issue, like I said, I do have to uh, use one that was already written. This is coming from the DC Wikia. Uh, and the reason I'm using this pre-written synopsis is because um, this is a humor book. So a lot of what's going on here really is just gags. Uh, there isn't much story. So um, with all apologies for not writing out my own uh, style synopsis, the story begins with a giant alien spaceship about to invade Earth and everyone is in a panic, but wait, wait, no. It's all a marketing plot to get people to buy Ambush Book number one. Ambush Book? Ambush Bug number one. And it works as the first issue sells out. Meanwhile, at the Ambush Bug Detective Agency, Ambush Bug is surprised when his old psychiatrist, Derwood Denton, stands up for him on national television. Um, which, if you read the book, it's really not him standing up to him. He's saying Ambush Book's crazy. Um... <laughs> And that's just the sense of humor that you're going to get in this book. Uh, just then, a garbage truck hits a bump, and one of its contents falls out and smashes through Ambush Bug's windows. Uh, Ambush, Bug's, Ambush Bug goes over to it, and it's a, just a baby doll with these obscenely big cheeks. And Ambush Bug thinks it's a real live boy. He decides to adopt it and make it his ward and sidekick, naming it Cheeks the Toy Wonder. Cute. Uh, <laughs> Bug dresses himself and Cheeks up in superhero costumes, and they go about the city looking for crimes to bust. While at a warehouse, a group of terrorists who are against Democrats have taken their grandmother hostage. She did vote for Jimmy Carter. Again, this is the humor that you're going to need to come to expect in this issue. Hmm. And they plan on blowing up the warehouse, which is full of a lethal nerve gas. The police have the place surrounded. Ambush Bug spots the scene, and he decides to try to save the day. As the bug secretes himself, uh, secretes. As the bug, <laughs> as the bug secrets himself into the building, the police are informed that the terrorists have bungled uh, the, what they're doing, and um, they're actually in a warehouse that doesn't have the nerve gas. The nerve gas is in the next warehouse over. Inside, though, ambush bug does manage to throw off the criminals and confuse them by using cheeks as a decoy. And again, this is just a baby doll that <laughs> ambush bugs. Ambush bug is just. He's essentially playing with it. Um, when the leader of the terrorists realizes uh, that he's afraid of just this inanimate doll, he kicks Cheeks the Toy Wonder aside and making one of the button eyes fall off of him. Furious, Ambush Bug chases the ringleader to a sporting goods store where he beats him up with a baseball bat. Uh, there's a really terrible sporting good gag, and it, uh, it's, it's really bad. I'm sure we'll get into it. Um, the, the bad guy's name is Homer. And, uh, well, Ambush I think Bug, they can figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Ambush Bug always wanted to hit a homer. Huh, huh, huh. Uh, as Ambush Bug defeats the last of the terrorists and saves the old grandmother, he leaves Cheeks behind to defuse the bomb. Again, this is a toy that does not move. Uh, of course, the bomb does go off, uh, apparently killing Cheeks. Just then, uh, get ready, we're getting metatextual here. Just then, the story is interrupted by Peabody, Dicker, and Pending, who uh, apparently is a law firm of some type or some marketing agency, and they're revealing a new line of Ambush Bug promotional items for the consumer. The Ambush Bug Aerobics Physical Fitness Workout Book for People 
an ambush bug data sheet, just like you would have found in Who's Who, uh, Late Night, a horror novel by Ambush Bug, and a humor strip called Little Bug, where it's a child version of Ambush Bug looking forward to the nuclear fallout that's coming, but then he has to spend the next day shoveling the nuclear fallout out of his mother's driveway. As we get back to the story, Ambush Bug turns over the terrorists to the authorities, and then he holds a funeral for Cheeks. In morning, Ambush Bug is then visited by his guardian angel, and he gives him some words of advice. Dead superheroes sell comic books. Reinvigorated and excited about the success of his first issue, Ambush Bug decides to celebrate the death of his sidekick by ordering a pizza, and he walks back home thinking up various euphemisms to get over the loss of Cheeks. When he gets home and opens his door, Ambush Bug is shocked to find Darkseid is waiting for him in his apartment. Yeah. Um, why the hell did I pick this book? Um, I don't know. What were you drinking at the time? Well, to be fair, I uh, since this was a, a last-minute call, uh, I suggested that Paul pick out a random issue for me to cover from the DC line of comic books. And uh, he had mentioned that he had never read Ambush Bug, so... And honestly, I had uh, never read... Uh, this isn't his first appearance. He was uh, in action comics and uh, some Superman books quite a bit uh, before this. But this was the miniseries that um, I guess would have made him famous or infamous. Um, <laughs> and um, from from the jump, when you get into this issue, it is all puns. It's really bad puns. And I like puns. I love The Muppet Show. And I love the puns on... Uh, what was it? Oh, um, veterinary hospital. Is that the? Yes. Uh, I love yeah. the puns on that. Uh, this is not that level, unfortunately. Um, this is this is just pun after pun after pun. It almost like there has been no thought to it. Whereas veterinarian's hospital, at least you had some. The pun was there, and you could almost see it coming. And then when they said it, it's like, ah, yes. Okay. I see that. Yeah. Here this, it's just, this, this has the subtlety of a sledgehammer. Um, and it's just, it's such a bizarre concept the, the terrorists are Republicans who are against Democrats. I, I'm not going to say what side of the aisle I'm on in a humor book, even with a humor book or any comic book, I don't really want politics in it swinging either way. Um, I don't, and, it, and not that comics aren't a forum where you can tell political stories. They absolutely are. It's not what I go in for when I'm reading a comic book. That's the, the last thing that I want on my mind is real life politics clouding a, uh, you know, a four color adventure book ostensibly. Um, so, it's just and i and and i understand it's just the most extreme level of absurdity that's what giffen's going for i mean he did write the Bwahaha justice league um so um why was that book funny and this just does not seem funny um I, well probably because the ju- yes it's a bunch of superheroes but the justice league at least had a bit of reality in there you had Beetle making Star Trek references. You had Guy being a dick. You had uh, Booster trying to make a buck. You had, you know, all these realistic personalities. These are caricatures of the worst kind. You, you, you know what this is? This is, right after reading it, I, I immediately thought of the Deadpool movie, how Deadpool is aware that he's in a, a movie, 
Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed the movie. I don't know how much more Deadpool movie I need, but it's imagine if the worst impulses of that movie were in 22 comic book pages um, is what this was to me. And it's just it didn't it just didn't work for me at, at really in any way. Um, and I again, I know it's a humor book and it's designed to make you laugh and scratch your head and be metatextual before metatextual was really becoming a thing. Um, you know, like the, the insert part is kind of funny. Um, but it's, I mean, it's like five pages. It's literally like, yes, here is this product line that we're launching. Um, it could have been handled in a much better way. I think, um, I just, I, yeah. Like if, if some of that stuff was in the background, like he went by a newsstand and they had a big advertisement for ambush bugs book or something like that, you know, just a, a little more, Subtle. This is hitting some guy in the face with a baseball bat, which is funny. The, but it, it, yeah, but the the, the whole the, lead up to that it takes forever. Is, yeah, I mean he's it. It's most of that page. It's cutting back and forth between the 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 thug and a sporting goods store. The yeah. thug and the sporting goods store, and it's okay. Yeah, I get it. You're buying a baseball outfit. Okay, you want a wooden bat, not an aluminum bat. Yeah, I get it. You're doing a baseball routine. And at the end, you know, oh, your your name is Homer. And yeah. then you just see the joke coming a mile away. It's a little, it, it's way too much. It's it's beating you over the head with it. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Oh, beating it's, him over the head with yeah, it. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 it's... I can understand the wanting to do it to you know be on the 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 very edge of something and you know trying to get as like South Park insults everybody equally. Yeah, cleverly though. This cleverly. This it seems like Giffen was trying to do that but didn't know how to get it done. And you know the whole oh, you know uh, the death of Robin thing that he goes through with cheeks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, complete to, you know, he's wandering depressed in the rain and you know, it looks like something right out of a, a Batman issue at the time. But yeah, it's just the, the I mean, it, it might've been all right. Might've been all right. If they pulled the heavy handed political stuff out of it. I, I mean, I get it. It's, it's supposed to be absurd, and that is about the most absurd thing you could probably do. Well, I mean, maybe not. It's it's you, clearly the 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 writer's leanings are showing through on that, which I mean, it does happen in in, in stuff. I just with well, with what they're trying to do with a humor book was, I mean, uh, wouldn't it have been just as funny if it was uh, you know clowns that hated midgets or something? Like that's the thing. Like you could have told the same story. Right. With yeah, changing like, it something else. Like, it's such a, a cold slap of reality in what has been so far in the book and what comes after. Just, you know, sub Monty Python level absurdity. And uh, it's not w- without the cleverness. I mean, the Monty Python mm-hmm. would give you, I mean, they'd give you a booby joke and then they'd have like a joke of like, you know, relating to something that Voltaire would have said. So it's, right. this does not have that that level everything in it is designed to be as in your face and obnoxious as possible i mean but with the you know family guys i made a you know a pretty significant uh cottage industry out of that um but again there's at least some bit of cleverness in there you know 
actually, Family Guy is the it's, it's funny tangent about Family Guy is that's the thing that actually got my wife to like a South Park episode. Because <laughs> okay. she she doesn't like that kind of humor. But when Cartman was going after Family Guy to shut him down, yeah. she was like, yes, Cartman, go. Genius. She thinks Family Guy is worse than South Park. Well, I mean, and they, but they're both serving two different functions. One is satire, right. and the other is joke, 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 joke. Which, if it's a comedy show, that's the idea: is to tell as many jokes as possible and see yeah. what lands. Um, the the jokes just didn't land for me in this, and it's a, uh, I mean, I don't know. Um, it, it's almost like if if it, the whole thing of this is like it's the mask. But if it all happened inside the mind of the character, you know, all the insanity, whereas in the mask, at least there is reality surrounding him. and He's the most absurd thing in it. Yeah. Everything else in this is just as, as absurd, um, which yeah, kinda, which which takes away from it. It makes the focal point character not really the focal point. Um, yeah. And there is there is humor that could have been mined from the fact that this doll flew through his window and he's now decided to make it his sidekick. And then the, the final pun of it is just, okay, the dead, dead hero cell. Um, you know, it, wouldn't you have done that in issue four or is it, was that part of the, the metatextual joke there that, okay, it's our first issue and we're going to kill this character character that you've well, only and, known. And that's, and that's just it. This is still 1985. This is before death in the family. Uh yeah, who would have died? But well, I mean, Christ. Well, no, crisis would have been probably ongoing, right? That would have yeah, still crisis been going. was happening right when this is going on. So Jason's Jason Todd survives. Yeah. So I mean, what? Who when, really would have? Eighty seven. Yeah, who really would have died in you know from the big two by this point? That was a major thing. Gwen Stacy. Well, all I can think is if you look at cheeks. He's dressed in all red outfit with a, a red and yellow symbol, so maybe he maybe they're going for a flash thing. Like oh. Giffen knew what was going on in Crisis, so he was doing a flash takeoff. Okay. If that's the case, then that's kind of clever, especially if nobody else was privy to that yet in the reading public. But so. actually, then it falls even flatter because then the the most recent hero to die was Bucky. Okay. And that was a retcon. <laughs> it's been 20-something years since that story was told. Right. When this comes out. Right. So I I just, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it, it's clever looking back, oh, well, he knew about The Flash, where if you were reading this off the stand at the time, you'd be flipping flipping through it. It's like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, and I, and I you know, I have no problem with with authors taking chances and trying something different, especially when it's a character that's, you know, that's the reason why the character exists is to play with those concepts. Uh, but it's, I don't know. I just, I think it's the worst impulses of meta narrative and poor humor kind of crammed all together. Uh, and it's a shame because I really like ambush bugs design. (laughs) Um, he's a really interesting looking character. Uh, you know, not when he's wearing the superhero outfit, but just in general, when he's just, you know, he's got like his purple robe on. It's a, he's just such a weird looking guy. Um, but... he, he looks like he's right out of the fourth world. 
Really? He does. He does look like he came right out of the... Well, they call, they, they talk about the source in this. I mean, that's right, right yeah, out they, of Kirby's fourth world stuff. Yeah, the, the the hand of the source actually comes in and tells him stuff. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering... I mean, and then his guardian angel, that has to be somebody in DC. I don't know who it is. Well, uh, I'm thinking that half of the people in here have to be caricature of somebody. Because if you look at the the terrorists or the uh, the uh, the merchandising guy, they look like he's trying to draw someone specific. Because that's not a standard comic book look. You know no, what I mean? No. It's, uh, yeah, it's, I just, I can't, I don't know. I'm a little disappointed. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I've never read an ambush bug. I mean, it, he'll show up occasionally and stuff. Like, I think there was something in um, one of the DC role-playing books that he was in. Yeah, he had, a, he had his own adventure, yeah. And it's, right. I mean, he is supposed to be used to make, you know, sly commentary on the DC universe. Uh, but this didn't work for me. And the last episode of Batman the Brave and the Bold, where they had him in it, worked amazingly. Oh, yeah. That was that was brilliance, the, the way they had that worked out. Between him and Batmite and going back and forth and everything. That was, I love that episode. But this is, I mean, it's like, it's like he's trying way, way too hard for this. Yeah. Like, this is his manifesto on everything. And he's trying to cram it all in here. It, it, it doesn't work for me. Well, that being said, let's see if Paul has any thoughts on it. Well, I mean, my, my thoughts in general are just that, Comedy in a written form is very, very difficult. Agreed. And I, I have to confess that I didn't get a chance to sit and read this from cover to cover because it came up as the book that you're going to cover pretty late in the game. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, I did go through it quickly. And while I kind of caught the gist of the comedy that they're trying to present, uh, it didn't really grab me. Okay, we're all in agreement. <laughs> yes. It, you know, it, it didn't, uh, you know, like, it just kind of left me flat a little bit. It's it's kind of like one of these books where they say, hey, look how clever I am, instead of just being clever and appreciate and letting you appreciate it on your own. Yep. If that makes sense. No, that's, we, we talked about that too. So, and I, and I apologize for anybody listening uh, that, I, that I may be repetitive of things that were already said. But I got called to wait for a few minutes on a on a minor emergency that's all taken care of now, so there's no problems. But I, I didn't get to hear a lot of the discussion on Richard this. Richard Gere is okay, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> the the artwork itself is also kind of leaving me a little flat because it's 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 in between. It's not really the comedy artwork that you would see, say, in a Marvel book like Not Brandeck. Yeah. Where they really kind of made it very exaggerated, and yet it's not artwork that would do in a superhero book if I read it. It would be, you know, subpar in that. So it's kind of trying to straddle the line between the two, and I think it's failing at that. So overall, this book, with a very cursory read on my part, let me down. Yeah. I Before we go any further, did you recognize who the guardian angel was? Because I'm sure we were talking about how it, it seems like almost everybody in here is probably a character of someone. Um, just if you have any thoughts on that, it's it's page 21 um, of the book. I just, I, you know, the wino in the sky. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking now. 
hey, your old guardian angel's always looking out for you. Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's got a little, little bit of Einstein going there. It does, actually. Okay, fair enough. I, I don't think that's who it's supposed to be. Well, I didn't know if, like, because I'm not familiar with who the editors and some of the other guys in DC were, so I'm not, I just don't know uh, what they look like. So I don't know if that was supposed to be an editor or... Um, because Very they, possibly. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I mean, just be. I mean, uh, and then I was. If I, it's not Kirby, even though they are referencing the source from the fourth world, but it, that doesn't look anything like Jack Kirby. Um, no, no. So I, I'm just. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be somebody. You know, it's funny. I, I recently, the other day, I was flipping through the channels, and what is it, Tiny Titans or whatever they call it? Teen Titans, Titans Go. Go was on, and. I, I haven't embraced that. I really haven't seen much of it at all. It's funny. <laughs> it's but, really but I, funny. I, they had an episode on it. Was it was? Uh, I think it was called something like Two Part Story Part Two or something like that. And Darkseid was on it, and Darkseid was talking, and then they they said something about his voice being scary, and he toned down the voice, <laughs> and then they were making fun of him for the rest of the episode because he sounded like Weird Al, Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah. And when when I when I out of curiosity, I looked it up, and Weird Al Yankovic does the voice of Darkseid on this. Yeah, it's... Um... <laughs> and I found that to be amusing. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Teen Titans Go! knows how to do comedy in the DC Universe. They make references, they comment on stuff, they do meta stuff with it, and it's genuinely funny. Um, I know a lot of people hate that show. I liked the original Teen Titans cartoon. I thought it was great. I like this the the Teen Titans Go cartoon for what it is. It's a short form humor anthology, and they put enough. There's the people that are working on that show know their DC history, and they know the kind of jokes that they can tell with that DC history and characters. The, the, right. The Ambush Bug number one miniseries number one, not so much. Well, you know, we we talked in the in the. Uh... The the uh, agents of Atlas book about how reading issue one made us want to read issue two. Uh, I can't say the same for Ambush Bug. No. And I did look up while we were talking. I just looked up the DC database and they do list the character as Guardian Angel. And it's funny because he's got a hyperlink, but the hyperlink leads you to do you want to create an article for Guardian Angel? Uh, well, <laughs> it's thanks. Not giving you any information on him. And even in the synopsis of the story, they just say visited by his guardian angel who gives him words of advice. They don't give you any indication as to who he is. Fair enough. So I'm not sure. I assume that you're correct, that they are trying to parody someone there. But I can't tell who it is. Yeah. uh, So I guess with uh, everything that we've extolled on this one, uh, the negative virtues of such, uh, (laughs) let's rate this thing. Uh, I guess since it was my book, I'll go first. Um, the parody cover of, uh, Superman number one, I guess it works, but it's nothing special. Um, ambush bug looks better in the interior than he does on the cover. That's a rare thing. Um, it's a passable parody cover, uh, C minus interior art. Uh, this art does nothing for me. The only character that looks interesting in this is ambush bug. Everybody else looks too cartoony which i mean i guess because it is a humor book that's okay um cheeks the toy wonder is cute i will say that and the depiction of dark side at the end is actually uh kind of good but other than that it's um it's not really my style of art either uh so um 
I can't go as low as a D because I mean, I mean, I could follow the story, uh, C minus on the interior art and, uh, the story, uh, that's the last piece here. Uh, this is, uh, this is an F bomb. Uh, I can find really nothing redeeming in it. I think as, as humor, it fails and as meta commentary, it fails and it's not clever about it. So, um, I, uh, what does that put you at? I guess that would put that, the book at a D mm. for disaster. <laughs> uh, what do you uh, think, Gene? I I'm pretty much on the same page, but uh yeah, the the cover is I mean, you're either going to do Superman number 1, Dece- Batman number 1, Detective 27, Action 1, something like that. It's I mean, it it would work better I think if he was somewhat in the Superman pose rather than just jumping. I guess that's part of the joke. I don't know, but it, yeah, I I'd look at this and go right by it, really, because I'd see it as like, oh, whatever. <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna give that a D. Just it's it's not not grabbing me. Interior art, it's yeah, I can follow the story, but it it's trying like with the the writing, it's trying too hard. It's it it would work a whole lot better if Ambush Bug was the weird looking one. In this one, he actually is the only normal looking one, which is saying something. So I'm I'm gonna give it a C minus on the on the interior art because it's not horrible. It's just not not great. And yeah, the story is an F because it's not funny. It's not even mildly amusing. I reading this made me want to unread it so, <laughs> the, the complete opposite of wanting to read the next issue so what's that a, a d plus maybe <laughs> if i'm being generous okay so now this falls to me uh and i do give it the caveat that i didn't read it closely so if somebody did find it funny and disagrees uh with the three of us uh, right in. Tell us why. Because as I've said so many times, I don't believe in disparaging anybody else's opinion. If you think it was funny, then I just would be curious to know why. And if there's a better ambush bug story out there, let let me know because I it's a character that I would like to see used the right way. I suspect that there is only because I know a lot of people really like this character. So I suspect that there are better stories out there. Or like I said, maybe somebody read this and they're seeing something in it that the three of us are missing. Uh, or, or their sense of humor is slightly different. Whatever it might be. Like I said, I don't, I don't belittle anybody else for having an opinion uh, that disagrees with my own. Art is very subjective, and writing is an art as well. So I consider any any type of entertainment to be art, and it's up to you what you like and what you don't. Uh, as far as the cover goes, it doesn't look to me to be a good parody of Superman number one. It clearly is a parody of it it's i mean that much of it it does you know it does serve the purpose of letting you know that they're parodying that cover but i almost would have thought that this was some independent publisher parodying it yeah and not an actual dc book and i agree that i think uh i think i would have passed it up if i saw it on the newsstand or in the comic store or whatever the interior art as i look more closely at it I think if this book were in black and white and not color, it would really look like an underground comic. I agree. That's, yeah. 
That's that's the way I see this artwork. And so some people can really appreciate that. Maybe Chris Honeywell would read this and like it because I know he likes underground comics. I'm not, and I've never really been a fan of underground comics. It's just not my thing. And when I see it, and when I see that style, it kind of turns me off a little bit. So for my personal purposes, I give this interior art an F because it really just doesn't do anything at all for me. Uh, in, in most respects, it looks kind of amateurish to me. So I can't really give it anything. I, I, I don't see anything in the way of like, well, you know what? I'm going to give it a D minus because the one picture of, uh, ambush bug where it's ambush ambush bugs aerobics physical physical fitness workout book he's drawn pretty well there and i always said i won't give it an f if i find any redeeming quality so i'm going to say a d minus because i think that's an okay picture and i think what you said earlier about them trying too hard on the writing is exactly true and i think as i said earlier i think it's almost a case of hey look at how clever i am instead of just being clever and letting people appreciate that. So I'm going to give the writing an F overall. Did I give a grade on the cover or did I just say I didn't like it? <laughs> I don't know. Give us a grade. I don't think I'm, well, if I didn't give a grade on the cover, I'm going to say a just a straight D. Okay. So it's a D on the cover, a D minus on the artwork, and an F on the writing. So overall, I'll give it a D minus. So we have a, a D, a D minus, and what, a D plus? Wow. This is like That's Apollo a Smile level review, review here. Woo. <laughs> uh, I'm glad we didn't end on this one. Let's just put it that yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, let's let's move on. I this is this yeah. is bad. Alright. Uh, now for the indie book, and we'll bring it up a notch, I hope. Yay. Okay, we are covering IDW's Star Trek Leonard McCoy Frontier Doctor, issue number two. Cover date on this is May 2010. The on-sale date, we have no idea because Mike doesn't have IDW in his database. Written and illustrated by John Byrne. Colors by Laverne Kinzierski. I'm sorry if I butcher that. Letters by Neil Uyetek and editor Chris Ryall. On the cover, we have Doctors McCoy and Duncan, as well as their assistant, the Andorian Thela, surrounded by a mob that's apparently very happy to beat the tar out of them. On the variant cover, which I have, shows Dr. McCoy standing next to an alien who's sitting on an exam table and holding its arm. Caption reads, then don't do that. We open to McCoy's ship, the Joanna, flying through space with the issue title Error in big letters. McCoy is finishing telling Thela about his experience with the Mirror Universe. Being a proud Andorian, she refuses to believe that her people could ever be enslaved, even by Mirror humans. She leaves McCoy to finish his handwritten letter to Jim Kirk and talks to Duncan, who is piloting the ship. Duncan tells her that he's read McCoy's memoirs and doesn't think even half the stories in it are true. We rejoin McCoy as he picks up the narrative of his letter. This causes us to do a flashback to the Joanna arriving on Gamma Tarsus 7, a planet consisting of five small islands totaling about the size of Manhattan on a gigantic ocean. Due to the space limitations, the natives have built vertically, including huge farm towers. The ship lands, and they are met by the person that called them there, Montgomery Scott. 
McCoy is surprised that Scotty isn't at Earth working on the Enterprise, and is told that Kirk pretty much ordered Scotty to take a vacation. Since this is a man who reads technical manuals for fun, Scotty decided to go where an engineer was needed. Gamma Tarsus 7 is going to join the Federation in the next year, and they need someone to help transition to new technology that they'll be getting. Scotty takes a wee bit of pleasure in telling McCoy that the only means of transportation on this planet is transporters. However, these are really old transporters and necessitate the wearing of a gold headband to stabilize the body. The quartet are beamed to one of the farm levels where they meet the seventh, where they meet the seventh citizen, Misholo. McCoy relates that, that the natives have a skull that makes them look like they are constantly smiling, which will get him in trouble later. After 48 minutes of greeting people, they finally arrive at the hospital. However, Misholo tells McCoy that they need to greet all of the attending physicians and then the families of the patients just to see if they'll be allowed to treat the patients. McCoy, being McCoy, tries to charge right in and is stunned for his trouble. He wakes up three hours later with Scotty and Misholo reiterating the need for protocol, especially with a civilization living in such small confines. Duncan, who went through the protocol, is examining the patients. He tells McCoy that he has found nothing. They are dying, and there's nothing physically wrong with any of them. Even the one dead body they examine has nothing wrong, except that it's dead. They do scans of as many visiting species as possible for a comparative study, and after three days, they still have nothing. It's at this point that McCoy is told that the natives are about to begin the observance of their most high holy day, Tamau, which means that all work is forbidden. McCoy is, pretty un understandably, upset by this and storms off into his cabin with Scotty in tow to share a drink. Duncan and Thela head to one of the garden levels for a walk and to think about the problem. Their thinking doesn't last long as they find a quiet corner and start making out. Scotty and McCoy are talking over the problem when Scotty reveals that the natives are not, in fact, native. Their oldest legends and their science say that they're descendants of a crashed ship. This, le this leads McCoy in new directions of thought, and he's still frustrated. He decides to head out for a walk to think things over. He manages to find his way to the hospital and, while trying to get inside, stumbles upon a huge black sphere. As he examines the controls, he's stunned again. When he wakes up, McCoy is confronted by an angry crowd. He's saved by Scotty and informed by the security officers that he'll be brought before the High Council for judgment in three days. In the meantime, he's confined to the ship. Scotty manages to slip McCoy a communicator, though, so he can still try and solve the mystery with Duncan and Thela at the hospital. Nothing they try can solve the mystery, and, eventually, the guards come for McCoy. He willingly goes with them, telling Duncan to make sure to read his log. McCoy is placed on the transporter, and, as the beam is energized, he takes off the headband. McCoy, McCoy arrives at the council chamber, completely confused as to what's going on. The council thinks this is a trick to get out of the charges, but Duncan and Thiel arrive with a copy of the doctor's log. It turns out that the transporters are being used to keep the populace young and healthy. The stabilizers retain all the memories of the person, but their bodies are reset back to the first time they used the transporter. This is what's killing the people, as the more times the body is reset, the more unliving cells build up. Unwilling to give up on the process, the leader of the council effectively sentences his people to eventual death. 
We wrap up on a holodeck, where Admiral Kirk is testing the layout of the new Enterprise Bridge. Scotty arrives, bearing a letter from McCoy, and the two friends go off to raise a, cl- a glass to the good doctor. So what did you guys think? Overall, I thought it was good. I'm, I'm not going to go as far as great. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was good. I, I like the way Byrne does the likenesses. In fact, I like that very much. A lot of times when you're dealing with licensed properties, the the attempt to make them look like the characters from the movie or TV show uh, results in very, very stiff-looking characters. Here it seems like he, he adapted their look to his style and is able to manage to, to have them pretty much look like the characters. I think... Uh, it's a little bit hit and miss with Scotty, but as far as his very limited shots of Kirk, I think he does well, and I think he does well with McCoy as well. Well, I think uh, McCoy, he actually made his own model, and rather than, like, with Scotty and Kirk, he more or less tries to get a, a picture and go from that. Right. Whereas McCoy, he just did a, his own model sheet and worked that out, which is why... McCoy looks perfectly fine next to Duncan and Thela. They look like they're all in the same space, not a picture superimposed on everything of McCoy, you know? Well, I'd say does, I don't think it looks like Scotty is superimposed to me. No, but you, you can look it, at some of them. It's just his image is a little inconsistent. Yeah, like some of them, it's like, okay, well, that is from this scene in the motion picture. Or that it's, one is from, uh, he's got a mustache, but this is what he looked like in that original series episode. Yeah. More well, you, you know, I mean, that, that shot of Kirk on the last page, I'm sure you photo-referenced that. Oh, yeah. It still looks good to me. It does, yeah. Uh, so that, that's that's the first thing when I deal with licensed products. That's one of the first things that takes me out of the story very frequently. And in this case, it didn't. Because mm-hmm. either, usually either it's like the uh, the gold key Star, Star Trek comics where the characters don't really look like... <laughs> Mira Sul is a black guy. <laughs> or, or it's... It's something where, like I said, where they, they look so photo-referenced that they look stiff. Right. So I'm kind of happy with the artwork here. And it's John Byrne, so I don't know if I've ever been unhappy with John Byrne's artwork. I My degrees of happiness might vary to some extent, but I don't think I've ever been unhappy with his work. It's, it's always got a, a feel to me that I enjoy. I do prefer Byrne's work when somebody else inks it. I agree, yes. So I think it could have been brought up even a step higher, but... That does. That's not to say that I'm dis, dissatisfied with this. Um, the story, it's it's kind of, it, it had a little bit of the feel. I don't remember the name of the episode, but of the uh, Next Generation episode when Wesley steps on the flowers. Oh and they're yeah. Gonna, uh, and, hey, and they're gonna the send porno planet. To yes, the porno planet. The porno planet. The '80s yeah. porno planet. Yes. So there was a little bit of feeling of that to me, you know, that he doesn't know the rules of this planet and he keeps getting himself in trouble because of it. Well, it's it's not so much that. It's they explain the rules to him, and then he just says, well, I'm sick of doing it your way. I'm going to do it my way, and then he gets in right. trouble. Well, yeah, I guess it's not that he doesn't know the rules. It's that he doesn't know the repercussions. Right. Well, he, Kirk's not there to temper him, so. But, but he, I mean, he is played as, as a dedicated doctor who happens to also be a curmudgeon, and that's, that's good characterization for Leonard McCoy as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Oh, yeah. Especially at this time, because this is before the motion picture, so he yeah, is, is not in, in Starfleet. The series and the motion picture, which yeah, uh, I was a little and, surprised to see Kirk in there for that reason, because I thought they had lost contact. Uh, n- not really. It, the motion picture is just that uh, 
McCoy isn't in Starfleet anymore, and Kirk right. drafts drafted me. <laughs> Your no. beloved Admiral Nagora. <sighs> invoked a little-known, seldom used reserve activation clause. Jeez. I think I've seen the movie a few times. Oh, I hear Chapel's an MD now. <laughs> I want top a nurse. nurse. Not, Not a doctor to argue every diagnosis. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? It's uh, You're in the one area of the world, the Two True Freaks Forum, where, where Star Trek the motion picture is revered. Yes. I wouldn't say I revere it. I enjoy it. It's not my favorite one. That's fine. That's not my favorite one either. The Wrath of Khan is without question my favorite one. Not even close. Nothing else approaches the Wrath of Khan, in my opinion, because that's I've said that many times. Not only is Wrath of Khan my favorite Star Trek movie, it's just one of my favorite movies. Ditto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whereas I agree that Wrath of Khan is the best Star Trek movie, but motion picture is still my favorite. Well, yeah, we, we have allowed for the distinction between best and favorite. And uh, I, I, I like to lean more on favorite than best because, you know, we, we've had that conversation since. Several times too, where you can. Uh, Who is the best fill-in co-host I, I on Back to the Bins? I know it's a great movie. What's that? Who's the best fill-in co-host on Back to the Bins, and who's your favorite? Don't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> but this, you know, we t- when we talk about movies, and, and I use Citizen Kane as an example, I can see why that's a great movie, and I enjoy it to some extent. But if I'm making a list of my favorite movies, it doesn't really come close to the top. Right. So. That's that's just an example of it, but we we are kind of going far afield here because we're supposed to be talking about yeah. Lennon McCoy Frontier Doctor, hmm. and this is exactly the kind of thing I see him doing during that time when he's not with Starfleet. So I do like that. Yeah, these aliens, is... like their whole story, is a little annoying as it goes on, but I do kind of like the resolution. Yeah, I mean, it, what lack it does... of resolution? Well, the the biggest Even compliment you can give it. Is that it doesn't feel out of place now? If imagine if you had Kirk and Spock with him and this had happened, they had had to go to this planet. The end result, maybe Kirk would have been able to sweet talk him, but probably not if that's their culture. I mean, I can't see him giving the, uh, you know, we plebnista speech to these guys and having them come around. Um, they, they would look like they enjoy hearing it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's. Uh, it's McCoy is always going to be that doctor, even when he's not in Starfleet. He's, you know, do no harm. I'm going to do what I can do. But it's maybe, you know, with Kirk and Spock, he might have been able to have more traction. But he, he's on his own here. He has to do what what these people want. He can't force himself into, you know, violating the prime directive, essentially. I guess he's not bound to it because he's not serving at this point. But he's also not going to be... He's a curmudgeon, but he's not an asshole. Right. It's it, entirely their choice as a society to do what they're going to do. He does not have to like it, but he's going to leave them to it. You know, there, there's nothing that he can do except give them the information. This is how to save your people's lives. If they're not going to act on that information, he has to go on to the next assignment. Yeah, pretty much. And... It's nice to see a store, an occasional story where they don't resolve the problem. Right. You know, the the, the world is, doesn't always get wrapped up in a nice, neat bow at the end. Yeah. So it, even it, in it, Star Trek, which makes it feel a lot more authentic than Next Generation, where everything was hunky dory at the end of pretty much every episode. 
Now, uh, Gene, have you read yeah. this entire series? Yes, I have. Is each one basically a standalone story? Yes. Yeah. So, like, uh, in the reason I didn't choose issue number one is because there's a lot of that that's set up. It's it's a standalone story, but it's background on Duncan having Thela join them, and so it it would it wasn't really going to be a a full issues worth of the problem, although the problem is there. Uh, and then after this, it goes into. Uh, no, I'm I'm wrong. The 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 third and fourth issues, there's some carryover between them. So like the first issue has nothing to do with the second issue, which has nothing to do with the third issue. But then the third carries over into the fourth, and that's actually also a connection to another burn Star Trek series, The Crew, because mm. there's a certain uh, admiral in issues three and four who looks an awful lot like a certain nurse that McCoy used to work with. Okay. So n number one. Number one is an admiral now, yes. All right. I'm going to have to pick that up, too. I've been hearing good things about all the burn Trek stuff, and this just uh, makes me want to read all of it. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm not entirely satisfied with the ending of this four-issue series because it's not ending. It's... Okay, McCoy's off on, on another one. We just don't get to see it. Right. But that, that makes sense because the only real ending will be the beginning of the motion picture. Yeah. Does he end and, uh, up with the necklace in the series? He does not. Damn it. <laughs> That's the story I want. That's the story I want. Now, Byrne didn't do that story. <laughs> it's the only one that matters. I mean, come on. How do you get that swag? <laughs> No, I just, uh, I, I dug it. It, it. Like I said, the biggest thing I can say is it feels like Star Trek, and the characters feel like they should feel. You know, it's, it doesn't, it it's not like they took some other story and tried to cram McCoy into it. Yeah, well, I, what's really nice is this is the one character that you can do these side things with, because you know where Kirk is, you know where Spock is, yeah. you know where Scotty is, you know where Chekhov is. Uhura, Sulu, they're all, you know, Spock's off on Vulcan. Chekhov's in security training, as per the Lost Years um, novel series. Everybody else is on the Enterprise. But you, I mean, you certainly could create adventures for them in those settings. And you, and that's what the whole Lost Years novels did, is that right. was, check the first one had a subplot for everybody, and at the end of that first novel was Chekhov saying, damn it, I'm going to go and become a security officer. And that's where he goes through the entire movie line, is he, he is, you know, except for the sidetrack of being a first officer on the Reliant, he's the security officer on the Enterprise. Do they do those books touch on uh, Spock going through the culinary? Because that's probably the thing that would be most, be most interesting to me if I was going to go pick up something like that. Uh, I don't remember to the extent, but they do. I think they do go to Spock every now and again. I think the first one sets up the whole purpose of the colon R, and I think maybe even touches on the uh, Katra repository for the uh, okay the Vulcans. I was I a... the the uh, colon R scene in the motion picture. Oh yeah, that was the first thing that really just kind of pulled me in. The first time I saw that movie, like once they, they, they got on Vulcan, all of a sudden I was just totally hooked on the movie. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I've, I've often said when it comes to music, when it comes to movies, when it comes to whatever form of entertainment, I always find it more enjoyable to get something from somebody who you know is enjoying themselves doing it. And that's and I feel like is. Burns' love of the source material comes through in this. Oh, and that yeah. makes it more enjoyable to me. Yeah, and just just some of the stuff that he does, like having McCoy hand write letters. Yes, it doesn't make. That was sense. a nice touch. <laughs> it, it it absolutely does not make sense in that setting unless you're someone who is trying to be as difficult as possible. And that's well, McCoy. But. Kirk likes things that are antiques, so I'm sure Kirk right. would appreciate the fact that the letter was not a substance-based communique. It was, I actually spent the time to write this in ink and send it to you. Right, and that's actually touched on in the first issue, because the whole the whole idea behind this is the, the letters are the narration for the story. And the first issue has Kirk in his office at Starfleet, and his secretary brings in... Something is like, yeah, this thing came for you. And I said, ah, I think I know who sent that. <laughs> nice. See, the thing about McCoy is, unless it really has a utilitarian purpose, I think McCoy eschews technology. Right. He's but almost, he, for all intents and purposes, a Luddite. Yeah. He, he when, uses the medical stuff yeah. because it helps him save lives. Yeah, it has a real purpose. Right. But he doesn't want things just for the sake of, oh, it's shiny or it saved me from having to take a step. You know, he, he's not interested in that. That's when, when they talk about the the transporter, and he says, you know, well, that would be a nice walk. <laughs> you know, he doesn't he doesn't want to take the transporter. Right. <laughs> which he never has, which that's always been consistent with his character. But, you know, it, it I think the writing out letters instead of using a pad or, or dictating them or whatever is very, very consistent with his character. And I think that's a nice touch by Byrne to throw that in there. Yeah. And I, again, I think it shows how he is—he's—he's he's invest, invested in these characters. It's not not just okay. I'm getting a paycheck for doing a Star Trek thing. I always got the impression he sought this out. That yeah. He I, wanted to do Star Trek, and he, you know, went to them and said, "Hey, hey, I have some ideas." Yeah, I think that he approached IDW saying, "Hey, I want—I want to do this story, this story, and this story," <laughs> and they said, "Yeah." No problem. We'll set you up. Because, I mean, really, if John Byrne wants to do something, he is so laser focused on it that you will get the best quality out of it. I mean, the only, the only reason he ever quit anything is when he had too much interference. Mm. Like like famously with the X-Men where he and Claremont plotted stuff out. He drew it a certain way and then Claremont in the, the scripting of it completely changed it. Yeah, which which made him, you know, pop a blood vessel. <laughs> right, which I I don't blame him, and that's that's why he does so much stuff that he he does both the writing and the art anymore. Well, he did the writing, he penciled it, he inked it, and he lettered it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only the only other person who touched it was the colorist, and I find it interesting that with everything that he did, the colorist also got a cover credit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the the colorist had to do a lot on on the cover, both of them. Yeah, I, I have it, to say, I also find it interesting where he chose to sign the cover. Oh yes, just slightly off from the center. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you don't you yeah. don't normally see that. Most artists seek the corner, you know, the the edge, somewhere somewhere off center. Vern, Vern went right in there. Well, he basically a manhole cover where they're standing with his signature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and out of the two covers, I I prefer the B cover, the one with the the alien, just because I it's an yeah it's an old joke, but it works. Well, it it works because he's using the character. Right. And again, he did sign that one kind of right, just off right. center. Yeah, between McCoy's feet. Yeah. All right, so... Uh, Is that enough gushing? Time to rate this one now. <laughs> okay. Well, my book, I go first. Um, I'm going to rate the A cover just because that's the one that was mainly on the stands. I happen I'm, to I'm going to give you a heads up. I'm going to rate both covers, so if okay. you want to do that, go ahead. I'll, I'll rate both covers. I'm going to rate both covers as an A. Because it's the A cover with the crowd, it it would make me want to grab it, not being John Byrne or Star Trek. It's just, boy, these people are really happy to be about to beat the snot <laughs> at these three. I want to find out what's going on. And the, the B cover, I'm also going to give an A because it's an old joke, but it fits McCoy and it fits the, the pose he has the alien in. And it, it works. And all, all the B covers that he has for these, it's all a joke. And you'll uh, did I include the, the one for issue three, the preview for issue three in, in this when I scanned it? Uh, I don't think so, no. Okay. No. Uh, the, the, one, the one for issue three, it's the same kind of thing, but it's a Larry Niven alien. Ooh. I uh, a puppeteer, I think, is the name of it, the two-headed thing. And he actually thanks Larry Niven for the loan of the character on that cover. But it's the puppeteer looking at McCoy, and the caption is, if I could walk that way, I wouldn't need the Brillica powder. Okay. So both covers for me are an A on this. Interior art, it's John Byrne doing Star Trek. And it's John Byrne doing Star Trek well. Uh, I Again, I would I would prefer someone else to ink him just because I think he's a little too sketchy when he inks himself. So it's not as tight as it could be. So for for that sketchiness, I'm going to give it a B plus. Story-wise, it, like you said, Hero, it is Star Trek. It feels like a Star Trek story. And what's even better, it's a done-in-one. <laughs> it's a four-issue four miniseries. He could have done one story for four issues, but he didn't. He did distinct things and this is this is a throwback to the comics i love it's it's an ongoing story with the duncan and Thela and mccoy going to all these different places but it is the subject matter of this is nicely handled in these pages so i'm going to give the story an a and i'll that's going to give it an a minus for the whole thing all right um cover a uh the mob scene um it's uh i mean there's a lot of negative space on the bottom i mean they're standing on the floor so it's i mean the focus isn't really the background the focus is the mob um the aliens i know that they're they're samey looking but even the costumes that the outfits that they're wearing are a little samey i like the idea of it um i you know it's uh it's better than a lot of the stuff that you would see nowadays and uh, in terms of selling me that it's uh, Leonard McCoy with some uh, people in it that I, I was not aware of, uh, I think it does a good job. 
And uh, like you said, the smiling aliens ready to beat the crap out of people. That's how can you not want to read that? Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty darn good. Uh, I'm gonna I would say solid B on it. The uh, B cover, um, yeah, it's cute. Uh, you know, really can't complain about that one either. It's uh, a lot of negative space with the star field, but it's Star Trek, so I guess it works. Um, that one probably a B minus, and uh, the interior art. That's a solid B as well. The likenesses are just like likey enough uh, to where it's good. In terms of narrative storytelling with the visuals, um, it's one of those ones that, you know, other than the fact that you would need the dialogue at the end to explain why the aliens are dying, you can pretty much strip all the words out of this one and get the same idea other than those last, you know, couple of pages. And uh, the story itself... It's a solid Star Trek story. Uh, you know, that's a solid B for me as well. So, I mean, overall, it's a it's a solid B book. It's not the greatest Star Trek that I've read or seen, but uh, it's something where I do want to pick up the other burned Star Trek stuff because I want to see good Star Trek again. All right. Uh, the A cover, I would give a B plus to it. I think it's very solid. I like the way it sets up. It looks like there's a group of the impossible man that are attacking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's exactly what you both said, that you see that these these weird smiling aliens, every one of them's got a bamboo stick in their hands ready to, to rush him and, and beat him. Uh, you know, clearly they're on the defensive it's one that just makes you say, how the heck did they get into this and what's going on? Which makes you want to pick it up. Uh, cover price notwithstanding, I, I try not to rate it on that. Uh, you know, Very often, where if I'm making a choice to pick this up, I would be doing it out of a $1 bin anyway. And If this was in a $1 bin and I saw it and I didn't have any background with it, I have no doubt that I'd want it. Uh, the B cover, each of the B covers is similar in that it's a circular image inside of a star field and i don't think that works on a front cover like that if if that was the you know the second page if that's your splash page i think it works fine but as the front cover of a book i don't really like it that way um that's really just a stylistic complaint as far as the artwork it's absolutely fine in fact i think leonard mccoy looks better on the b cover than he does on the a cover so I'm gonna say I'm gonna say a B plus for the A cover and a B for the B cover, and my B is really based more on the fact that, like I said, I don't like the way the star field looks on it. The interior art I think is is pretty solid. The only thing, as we've said, is I would prefer it if someone else had inked it. But you know he does an okay job inking his own work. It's not that I don't like his inking. It's I just think he gets complimented much better. Uh, I think you said, uh, Gene, that you know he tends to leave himself a little scratchy and doesn't clean himself up quite as much as he can, and, and that's kind of what I see. And, and sometimes with, with his own inking, he doesn't really do as well with the backgrounds. Uh, you know, when he has McCoy walking into the the room with the giant ball in it, yeah, he, he put an incredible amount of detail into the background there, but there's a lot of backgrounds where all it is is the color. And there's really nothing behind them. So I'm going against what I said in the early issue where they had too much background. Now this one doesn't have quite enough background. So, you know, I think 
with a different inker, it would have been a little bit smoother as far as that goes. Uh, overall, it's still John Byrne, and I still I would love to own a page from it. So I'm going to say a B on the interior artwork. The story, like you said, it's it's Star Trek. It has that Star Trek feel. It's not a particularly consequential issue, but they don't have to be consequential to be entertaining. All they have to do is present a good story and, and keep the characters true to form. And I think they pretty much do that. Uh, I'm not crazy about Scotty in it. He's just kind of like the tour guide more than he is a character. But overall, the story is still kind of enjoyable. So I'm going to say a B on the story as well. And I'll give the book a solid B. I, I was going to say almost a B plus, but no, I think just really, really firmly just in the B range. And silence right. ensues. <laughs> now, if I can do a little bit of promotion here. Absolutely. Uh, feel free. This is actually on my wish list. But if you go to the twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link and then search for Star Trek, the John Byrne Collection. This is a Buy collected... it and send a copy to Gene. And while you're doing it, send one to me, too. Right. It is. Here's what's included. Alien Spotlight Romulans. Assignment Earth. Romulan's Balance of Terror, Romulan's The Hollow Crown, Crew, Romulan's Schism, and Leonard McCoy Frontier Doctor for $23.79. Oh, that's not bad at all. No. That's not not bad. It's actually very good. That's a great price. Yes. So uh, if anyone is interested in more John Byrne Star Trek, that's what you got to do. Or anybody interested in sending it to Gene or I? Yes. Yes, please. (laughs) Or Hero. Hero wants to read more. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't want you to send me comic books. No, no, no. See, that's the voice of a man who's getting married soon and is afraid of what he can bring. <laughs> I can bring whatever I want. That's as long as Maureen isn't listening. Ah, she's got no problem with the comics. Whereas my wife is also a Trekkie and will probably read this before I read it. There you go. That's That's always nice. Well, well I, I guess I guess I guess we've we've kind of run our course here, <laughs> but it's it's been fun, guys. I appreciate I you coming on with me. Oh, always happy I always to come enjoy on. Talking to you guys. Yeah, this was fun. Oh yeah. Sorry, I had to disappear for a few minutes. There. That's all right. You missed nothing. Yeah. yeah. Other it, than you'll hear that whole bit in the ending. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to two true freaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the two true site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Give me some loving. Uh, yeah. <laughs>